This is Tending Seeds, a podcast about my adventures in homesteading and herbalism. I'm Sarah Schuster, and I'll be your host. Thanks for being here today. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the first merch episode here. Spring has finally arrived, and just as quickly as it came, it seems to have disappeared again, at least for a minute. So we had some really nice weather last week, and then the past few days, we've been getting down below 20 degrees at night. Even had a few snow flurries there Sunday and Monday. Hopefully it's going to warm up the rest of the week. Um, But of course, warming up means more rain. Because, you know, the mud was starting to dry out, so it's really important that we water it. Anyway, news here on the farm is that I am still working on the herb office, working on putting up insulation, just about done with that, ready to start working on the walls and the roofing. We also are working on the sunroom, which was something we added onto the house after purchasing it. And we've been so happy. That was something I've wanted to do for so long. We actually looked at uh, doing it to our previous house and priced it out. And it just wasn't feasible at that point. And it didn't make sense for us to do it when we knew that that wasn't going to be our long-term living situation. We also found and picked out flooring to put in the sunroom and my herb office We got a pretty great deal. We found stuff that we wanted and liked for a dollar a square foot, which is pretty hard to beat for anything of decent quality. So I'm really excited to get that done. The next big thing that we need to get done in the sunroom, in addition to the flooring, is getting our wood stove installed. I've been doing a lot of research and debating whether we were going to do that installation ourselves or have someone come out and do it for us. And the more research I do, the more I'm leaning towards coughing up the money and having someone else do it for us. Not least of all, because it's just not something I have any experience with. And it seems pretty important to not burn our house down. Also, after doing some more research, I found that the majority of home insurance companies require that if you do have a wood stove, that you submit a letter showing it was professionally inspected at the very least. And some places even require like a letter showing it was inspected on a yearly basis. So it might be easier just to let someone else come out and do it professionally, someone who's licensed and insured. So that's on my list of things to price out. In terms of farm and garden, it is now seed starting time. I actually feel like I'm running a little bit behind, but that's okay. I will get caught up next week once I'm back in town. I'm getting ready to head out of town here. I'm looking at what to do about our soil, which is very clay heavy. So I need to do a lot of work to kind of loosen that soil up, work more organic matter into the soil, adding compost and things like that. I'm also trying to figure out what to do about the deer. I love deer. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably see me posting videos in my stories pretty constantly of all the beautiful deer that we have on the property. And like I said, I love them, but I'm also not looking forward to the battle of keeping them out of our vegetable garden as well as the herb gardens as well. So I'm debating what to do about that in terms of trying to put up some sort of fencing. What do I want to do? Do I want to go with like seven foot high, you know, deer netting, which then you have to run things through to make sure birds don't get caught in it. And also it's just pretty ugly looking and unattractive and not really the aesthetic I want to see when I look out across the fields. Or do I want to go for a lower fence that won't be as good of a deterrent because they will be able to jump over it. At this point, I'm thinking about doing a lower fence, something maybe about five or six feet high, or probably more like five feet high, and then seeing if I can put something on the other side of that on the outside of it, 
maybe some sort of shrub of some kind, or who knows, maybe I'll put trellises there to grow runner beans and things like that. I'm not really sure yet. Okay, one of my big topics for today that I want to talk about has to do with all of these wonderful spring greens that are coming up for us here. And they're definitely contributing to some of our meals and just generally making me really happy to have some fresh spring brightness coming into the house and into our food. My normal disclaimer here applies. I'm not a doctor. I'm just an herbalist. Anything I say about, you know, uses of plants or properties they might have, you need to do your own research and verify on your own. Also, big thing here, if you're going to go out after this and start looking around in your own yard or on walks around your property, make sure you are properly identifying all of these plants. And I always tell people, make sure you're IDing plants from more than one source. I like to go out and take you know, my phone with me. There are apps on your phone that you can use that usually aren't going to give you a 100% positive identification. But a lot of times I find those phone apps because you're sending like a photo in and they're doing some sort of matching from that. You can usually help to narrow it down to a general um, family of plants. And that is a good starting point to then do further identification from usually using um, maybe like Peterson's field guide or something like that. Also, another important thing, if you do go out and start harvesting from somewhere, make sure it's not an area that's being sprayed with any sort of, you know, pesticides or anything like that. Also, be really careful. You don't want to harvest near roadways and especially not near railroad tracks, which are areas that are always sprayed very, very heavily. Normally, if I was going to talk about any sort of wild crafting or foraging, I would definitely be giving you notes about being mindful of how much we take when we're out there. But with greens like this, you're usually going to be just giving them a quick trim or a haircut, as I like to call it. And this lets them grow back really quickly. Also, none of the plants that I'm talking about right now today are considered endangered or at risk. If you want to know more about what plants are at risk in your area, I would suggest you check out United Plant Savers, which is a fantastic organization. Not sponsored by them or anything. I just think they do really great work. If you have the ability to become a member, there's some great perks that go along with that. They actually have a botanical sanctuary up in Ohio that I hope to visit someday and all around just an awesome organization that I really, really love supporting. A plant that you probably are seeing tons of right now would be dandelion, the supposed bane of, you know, standard American lawn owners everywhere. And one of the quote unquote weeds that they love to try to get rid of and eradicate and why they, you know, spray pesticides all over their lawns. But we don't do that here. We love dandelion. It's a wonderful, wonderful plant. And every bit of it is edible and useful in some way and also just really nutritive and delicious. So I love getting some of those early dandelions, especially those leaves when they're young and tender and they're not, you know, overly bitter yet. Also, this is a good time of year that if you're going to look at digging roots, this is the time of year when you want to be doing that. So whether that's dandelion or any of the docks, you know, yellow dock, burdock, things like that, you want to do that now before they've started shifting their energy completely from the roots upward into the rest of the plant. Rosemary Gladstar actually says that dandelion is such a powerful medicinal herb that you can use her roots any time of year. But other people claim that you should only dig them in late fall, early spring. So take that for what it's worth. I think 
I'm inclined to go with Rosemary on that one, but that's just me. Your mileage may vary. Make whatever choices you want. It's your lawn. Another thing you probably have seen popping up, and actually for us, it's been here year round. Um, it never died back this winter, even though it got pretty cold and leaves of it got pretty frostbitten looking, but plantain has been around all year for us. So this is a great plant that you can always grab leaves of just to nibble on or to you know add to salads and things like that. It's also something that I use in a lot of my salves for skincare. It's really great for the skin. It's so nourishing and helpful for that. Another plant, actually one of my favorites, is chickweed. I would really encourage you to go ahead and Google that. Odds are you've seen it. Odds are you have it out in your yard. I love it. It's such a, such a cute little plant. It has these small white flowers that have um, five sets of um, two petals. So it looks like it has 10 petals, but if you look closely, they're actually five petals that are split to where they look like they're each two. But I love them. They're just these tiny, dainty little flowers. And it's also a great salad green that you can pull. Can You can dry it for tea, though it doesn't last for a super long time. So I like to use that up pretty, pretty fast if I do dry it to make tea from it. I also like to do an infused oil with it as well. Another plant out there that you're probably seeing popping up is purple dead nettle. Um, this is in the mint family. So it has a square stem, has really pretty flowers on it. It sort of looks um, the way it's got leaves that are stacked and the flowers sort of peek out from under the leaves as they stack up towards the top. This is a really great one that, you know, the young shoots of it are really yummy in salads. I also have taken um, chickweed and dead nettle and did just like a quick stir fry with them. So a really easy way to prep that is I'll just take a frying pan, chop up an onion, lots of garlics, maybe some mushrooms, saute all that down right until the point where it's just about ready to serve. And then just at the very last minute, throw in, you know, a handful of chickweed, a handful of purple dead nettle, maybe some chives from the, from the yard as well. Let that saute just down for another minute or two, and then it's ready to go. And it's so yummy this time of year. And how cool is it to be able to invite people over for dinner and serve them something that they can't go get at the grocery store and they may have never eaten before. Now, you've probably heard of nettles. So purple dead nettle, it's called dead nettle because it does not sting you. So other nettles, um, which we use for more medicinal purposes, definitely they're called stinging nettles and they will sting you. They have those little, little spikes along, you know, along the stem and not to worry, you can eat these as well. You just need to make sure that you prepare them the right way. And it's really simple. You can prepare them either by drying out the nettle leaves or by applying heat. So like a saute pan, like we talked about with that recipe just a minute ago. So I love to dry my nettle out and then use it for making herbal infusions. Nettle is actually probably the herb that I use the most consistently on a regular basis. I love it. I think it's delicious. I love just, you know, filling up a quart-sized mason jar about a third of the way full, then adding hot water, let it steep overnight, strain it out, and then I'll just drink that throughout the whole day. It makes a really great tea. I don't think I have a single tea blend that I make for myself these days that doesn't have nettle in it at the very least. Another plant popping up in the yard right now is cleavers. This one's a really cute plant. Um, I would also Google that and look at some photos of it. It has um, whorled leaves going circularly around the stem and it's called cleavers because it will cleave. It will 
clutch you basically. And so if you've ever walked along and then looked down and had, you know, plant matter sticking to you, it may have been cleavers. This is another one that is just a great sort of, you know, cleansing, you know, spring green to work into your diet. I actually will sometimes juice it and then put that juice into smoothies and things like that. And lastly, another plant, garlic mustard, which is usually, I can find that pretty much year round here, unless it's a really, really, really harsh winter, which we definitely haven't had this year. Garlic mustard is considered to be an invasive plant. So this is definitely one that in terms of going out and foraging, take all that you want. No one will ever get upset with you. It is definitely not remotely endangered in any way whatsoever, but it's pretty tasty. And it's another thing that's fun to throw into, you know, stir fries, onto salads and things like that. All of these plants work really well together. So just to recap, uh, dandelion, plantain, chickweed, purple dead nettle, chives, nettles, cleavers, and garlic mustard are all things that are pretty easy to find. I've been able to find all of those um, except for stinging nettle. I've found all of those within about 20 feet of my back door. Actually, on that note, it's a little odd, I think, that in our woods here, I have yet to find any stinging nettle, which most places in Tennessee, it's so easy to find. It's kind of everywhere, but I haven't found any on our property yet. So definitely going to be planting some this year for sure. All right, moving on to our next segment. I want to keep talking about community building. I know I've mentioned our homesteading group. It's on Facebook, the uh, Homesteaders of Middle Tennessee. And I've mentioned before some of the group buys that I've been able to be a part of and that have saved me a lot of money. And there's another one happening right now, actually, and it's definitely going to pay off big time for us. Someone is putting together a group buy for berry plants. I put on the brakes for myself and I did not go overly nuts with this, even though I was very tempted to. But I got a small kind of starter pack that has strawberries, blueberries, blackberries, and raspberries. I also bought several... And by several, I mean 20 asparagus crowns and then a few more elderberries. My thinking with this is that I want to not go too big too fast. I think it's so easy when you start homesteading to dive in too quickly and to get in over your head and then you're losing out on money because projects fail or in this case, plants die because you're not able to care for them the way they need to be cared for. So I want to be really careful of that. And so I'm trying to make sure that I'm not biting off more than I can chew. And I will continue to hopefully, you know, add to these each year, grow that strawberry patch, grow that asparagus patch. Also along one side of our property, we have a neighbor that's a little bit close to us. We kind of want to make more of a barrier between us because they have floodlights that are on pretty much 24-7. And one of the nice things that you're supposed to look forward to about moving, you know, out of the city is getting away from all that light pollution. And yet we have these lights that light up our front yard, at least part of it, and sometimes even come into our bedroom. I'm not trying to start a war with our neighbors. I don't want to have any sort of confrontation. So it seems like the easiest solution is to just get a natural barrier going up there. And in this case, also to make it a barrier that's useful to me because who doesn't want more elderberries? So this seems like a great solution, handles many problems, including my extreme berry shortage. And best of all, it's coming through another community resource here, which makes me super happy. Our other main topic for today is answering a listener question. Libby wrote in and asked, how do you make homesteading an economic reality 
and then added that they work on a small urban market farm, which has really opened their eyes to what goes into running a farm as a business. And they're curious in what ways homesteading is similar or different. The first thing I'll say is thank you, Libby, for asking this. Um, This question actually got sent in a few weeks ago, and I responded to say that I need to make this pretty much its own episode. I don't think this is going to be a short answer. So I hope I don't meander around too much, Libby, and I hope this answers your question. If not, feel free to message me and ask me additional follow-ups. I think if you ask 20 homesteaders what homesteading is, you'll get 20 different answers. But in general, I think when we talk about homesteading, we're talking about self-sufficiency, and mostly we're talking about increasing our self-sufficiency. There are very few of us out there that are completely self-sufficient. I don't want to say it's impossible, but pretty close, I think, in this day and age. And you're going to be very disconnected from the world, I think, if you're living a completely self-sufficient lifestyle. The biggest thing I want to say in reference to talking about the economics of homesteading is that in contrast to Libby working on a market farm, is that homesteading doesn't have to be a business. It definitely can be a business. I know a lot of homesteaders that at least are making part of their income from something that they're doing um, from their land, but it doesn't have to be. There are also plenty of folks out there that are homesteading that work, you know, full-time jobs off off of the property. Um, Another common misconception, I think, with homesteading is that you don't need a lot of land. There are urban and suburban homesteaders. While most of us, I think, are focused on becoming more self-sufficient, especially in regards to our food, you know, farming, canning, other forms of food preservation and things like that, that doesn't have to be the sole focus. There are plenty of people out there homesteading that might get all of their food from the grocery store, but they're completely, you know, off-grid maybe in terms of power, water, and sewer. So there are lots of different ways to look at self-sufficiency. Like I said, homesteaders, if you put 20 of them in a room, they're all going to tell you something different because it looks different for all of us. And you may be on 50 acres, you may be on zero acres, you might be, you know, living in a city and just growing what you can, or maybe you've got, you know, solar panels up on your condo or something. Um, It can look a lot of different ways. Urban homesteading is definitely becoming more and more of a trend right now. There are some great resources out there for that. I can definitely connect you with some other people if that's something that you are interested in. For us, in terms of making homesteading an economic reality, right now my partner works full-time at a job that is not connected to the homestead, and I also work a part-time job elsewhere as well for a little bit of extra money. Our goal is to really work on reducing our monthly expenses and hopefully get our mortgage paid off as quickly as possible so that then my partner can either work for himself or choose to cut back to doing part-time contract work or some combination of those things, maybe setting up a woodworking shop and, you know, not doing that just as a hobby, but also as maybe a small source of, you know, side income or a side hustle as we like to call it. And as they're doing that, I'm going to hopefully be growing the farm, moving towards becoming a clinical herbalist and being able to see clients. And that will hopefully become my main sources of income there, Um, just doing things off of the farm and off of the land here and, and working for myself. That's the dream, at least. So we'll see how long it takes to get there. I think tentatively, we're looking at probably five to seven years before we're fully up and running and both of us able to live fully the lives that we want to live in terms of what sort of work we're doing and and where we're doing that and not having bosses except ourselves, hopefully. 
I think one of the real benefits of homesteading, if you're looking at producing more of your food, is that it can have a really good economic benefit for your overall budget for the month. You know, the more you're able to, you know, grow for yourself, the less you're having to spend on outside food coming from, you know, the grocery store and things like that or going out to eat. So for me, it made sense to not be working a full-time job and only work a part-time job outside of the home because that gives me time to hopefully grow the bulk of the food that we eat here and as well as, you know, the necessary time to work on our farm and get that up and running as well. You know, having a vegetable garden to feed ourselves then having the herb garden as, you know, the business portion of what we're doing. But plenty of homesteaders are just vegetable gardening. They're not doing, you know, they're not growing things to sell elsewhere necessarily. So in terms of Libby's question about the economics of homesteading, right now I feel like I'm a lot more worried about not so much the financial economics of homesteading as I am about the time management economics of it just because so much of this takes so much time, you know, it's, it's not easy or convenient to try to grow the majority of your own food and get a farm up and going and still be working, you know, X amount of hours outside of the house every week. I also know that I am in a position of privilege that we are able to keep our bills low enough and to be able to do this where we're not having to rely on two full-time incomes in order to make ends meet And we can instead, you know, work on trying to get bills paid down and and things like that. So there's definitely a lot of, you know, privilege to that. I think the biggest financial obstacle to getting started with homesteading has to do with the dreaded down payment. For us, we saved up for several years in order to be able to do this. I talked about this a little bit in the intro episode, but I worked in restaurant management for three years. At the time when I was doing that, I was thinking that I would eventually be opening up my own restaurant. So we really stuck to a good budget and we cut our living expenses down as much as we possibly could and set up our budget to where we were just living on one of our incomes so that the other person's income could go into savings towards that restaurant. Then we ended up deciding to shift gears and not open a restaurant. So instead that savings money ended up going into the down payment and the repairs and improvements for the house. But I know for a lot of people, you know, it's it's really hard. I am I read a statistic the other day that I think something like 70% of Americans are basically living paycheck to paycheck and being able to save money is kind of, you know, the furthest furthest thing from their mind and maybe not something that is at all feasible for them to be try to be doing. So, getting that down payment is definitely I think a huge obstacle if we're going to talk about the economics of homesteading because if you get a, you know, reasonably priced, you know, house and not a huge parcel of land, in most cases, at least where we're living, a mortgage is usually going to end up being less than what it cost you to rent a place that was smaller and had no land attached to it in the first place. Nashville is experiencing a, a crisis in terms of affordable housing. Rent prices here are pretty, pretty nuts. Um, I've only lived here for, I think, 10 or 11 years now, and I've seen such a huge increase in overall rent prices just in that short period of time. So again, I know for most people that initial barrier is going to be the hardest one to get over is getting that down payment. Also, to get most types of home loans, the value of the house needs to be a certain percentage of the overall loan compared to the value of the land. So the more acreage you add, the more you're tipping the balance on that formula. 
So I know plenty of us, when we first, you know, talk about, you know, running off to the country and homesteading, we might be dreaming of, you know, getting, you know, 50 or more acres of land and a hundred year old, you know, farmhouse. The problem is that the farmhouse, if it's a hundred years old, is probably pretty run down and needs a fair amount of repairs. And also that land then is likely to be worth more than the house. And so it's going to be really hard to get a conventional loan on that. So I think then we end up having to look at smaller pieces of land and usually, you know, land that has a newer house on it, which sometimes means then that that house is going to be more expensive, which means your overall, you know, loan amount might be higher in order for you to find the right ratio for you to actually get that loan approved in the first place. That's just a little bit sort of about the economics of homesteading. Libby, I hope that answered your question. I feel like I could get very long and rambly about what homesteading is and isn't. And I think the bottom line is if you want to call yourself a homesteader, you're a homesteader. You don't have to be living on tons of acreage. You don't have to be completely self-sufficient and doing it all. I think if you're making any sort of effort to move in that direction, to be more connected to where your food is coming from, understanding, you know, where your water is coming from, where your power is coming from and things like that. And just having a more direct relationship with those parts of your life, then I think you're moving towards self-sufficiency and you can call yourself a homesteader. If anyone else has any additional questions about this, or there are parts of this that maybe piqued your interest and you would like me to expand upon in future episodes, I would definitely love to do that. Just shoot me a message and we can definitely make that happen. So I will see you guys in two weeks again. I'm really excited. I'm leaving tomorrow for Organic Growers School in North Carolina. So I'll be there for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday doing workshops and things like that. Really excited. I think I might even get to meet up with a few of you that I know through Instagram. A bunch of you have told me that you're also going to be there for parts of it. Some of you are even doing presentations. That's really great and cool. I hope I get to meet up with some of you guys can't wait to do that. And I'm sure next podcast, I will be telling everyone all about it and all of the great things I got to learn about and probably 50 new projects that I want to start as a result of that. As always, you are welcome to contact me with any questions, comments, topics you'd like me to cover. My email is foxandelder at gmail.com. And my Instagram is also foxandelder, all one word. I'll be back with another episode on the third Wednesday of the month. If you're enjoying the podcast, if I could ask you if you would please maybe share it with a friend that you think would enjoy it also. And if you have a minute, if you could leave me a rating or a review wherever you're listening to podcasts, I would super appreciate you. Thank you so much. Until next time, keep your hands dirty and your heart open. Mm